as we have been over the past year. Uh, we're in John chapter 19, and uh, this morning, if Timmy, if you could play that for us as we get ready to, uh, to hear God's word. Chapter 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, 
Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that the seed of your word would find fertile soil upon our hearts and our souls. Lord, that we leave this day, Lord, that we'd apply your word, that we'd have a greater uh, appreciation for what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I, when I was uh, uh, contemplating, you know, the things that go over, because a lot of people have, have uh, you know, heard this, you know, over and over again about, you know, Jesus when he died and all this other stuff, but I, I didn't want to deviate from that, but also I wanted to uh, look at it from a little different perspective, and so I thought of the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's an old hymn that, you know, that, you know some may know, some may not know. Um, I know now uh, not to ever doubt my wife when it comes to knowing hymns, because there's a couple of hymns that, you know, that I'm going to include in here, and I said, well, you probably have never heard this one, and then she began to sing it. And I said, I stand corrected. And so I know now not to sit there and question. I'm just going to assume that she knows it. Of course, I may still ask her just to make sure. I don't want her to ever, you know, come up and, and uh, you know, I assume that she knows it. And she's like, I have no idea what that song is. But pretty much every time that I've uh, asked her if she's known one and thinking that she doesn't, she does. Probably about 99% of the time, she knows it. So... Me, uh, I didn't grow up in church, so to me it's like, oh, I heard, a, I heard this one song, and my wife said, yeah, I've heard, I've seen, I used to sing that growing up. So she just does that to me, you know, and, and I realize that, uh, like I said, how much she knows. But if you ever uh, heard that song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it's written by Isaac Watts. 
This morning, what I want to do is that I, I want us to look to survey the cross on which Jesus, uh, Jesus died. Even though Easter is still a few months away, Easter is a time when we remember, when we are reminded and we remember the wondrous cross of Christ. The cross is about Jesus' death, which is essential to the gospel. It's something that we cannot overlook. We cannot say, well, I've heard this story a hundred times, so I, I got it. I think that we always need to be in awe of what Jesus did. When we start losing that awe, then I think that we need to begin to pray and read God's word more and say, Lord, help return the awe that I should have. The cross is, is about Jesus' death, but it's also about the salvation of sinners, which, is require, uh, which required a perfect sacrifice. He's our salvation. He, it required that perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus qualifies to be the Savior of sinners. He's the only one. He's the only perfect uh, uh, person that has ever lived. So if you think that, you know, the, the sun rises and, and, and sets upon you, I'm sorry to tell you, it's not true. I hate to burst your, uh, burst your bubble, but, you're, you know, the sun does not rise and fall upon you, all right? So some of you may hang your head a little low this morning because you, you just realized this. You know what, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to let you know in case your spouse didn't already let you know that. But what I want to look at is the view of the cross. The view of the cross and the cruelty of the cross. The, the view of the cross was gruesome and horrifying. How many in here have ever seen the passion of the Christ? I'm assuming that probably a lot of people have ever seen that one. And let me tell you that that depiction that Mel Gibson made in there was not even close to what Jesus went through. He wanted, uh, actually Mel Gibson originally wanted to make it closer to what it, it would be like but they said that, they, uh, that the R rating it already was receiving, they didn't know which rating to go up to next, you know, besides NC-17, and he didn't want to go that far. But as gruesome and horrifying, the sight would have been awful and sickening to the stomach. The world offers a beautiful picture of, of rabbits and Easter eggs, which I think, you know, oftentimes is a distraction of the true meaning of the cross. It's the world's way, I believe, of avoiding the ugliness of sin and the terrible treatment of the Son of God. I don't think there's anything wrong you know, with you know, people you know, having a rabbit or you know, wanting to have, you know, do an Easter egg hunt or anything else, but I think oftentimes the world uses it as a distraction because they don't want to look at their own sin. They want to look at a cute little bunny. They want to look at painted little eggs and think this is, this is something that's, you know, this is what Easter is about. It's not about the Son of God. The suffering of Jesus began... As his, uh, at his appearance before Caiaphas, the high priest, he was falsely accused of blasphemy. They spat in his face. They smote him. When they says they smote him, they smacked him. They took their hand and, and, and smacked him across the face with their hands. He was brought before Pilate, who had him scourged before, he, uh, before being delivered to be crucified. Scourging was more than a severe beating. Jesus was beaten with a whip of leather th uh, throngs with either lead balls or nails and glass. Most people did not survive this whipping. What it would do is, it, uh, as they would do it, and they had professionals that would do this. They had professional people that would take these, and it would wrap around the body, dig into the, you know, the flesh, and then at, they would pull, and it would rip off flesh, leaving ribs exposed, leaving bones exposed oftentimes. That's why most of the time, because of the loss of blood, most people didn't survive. Jesus was so cruelly and viciously beaten that he hardly looked like a man anymore. 
The Bible says in Isaiah, where he wrote, many were astonished at thee, that his vestige was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. It's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. He didn't look human anymore. They also, the prophetic words of Isaiah ring true in Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Like I said, Jesus did not look human. Those at the cross were shocked, and many were astonished when Jesus, when they saw Jesus. The people who stood at, at the foot of the cross of Christ witnessed the most cruel, uh, cruel and painful form of torture known to man. This practice was the Romans' means of punishing people for their crimes. They were, uh, they were known for killing tens of thousands by crucifixion. This wasn't something new for them. They had perfected it by the time, that Jesus, by the time of Jesus. They knew what they were doing. Jesus' suffering was with a purpose, but not for his crimes that he committed. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and, his, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every way to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, who? Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus was suffering in our place as our substitute. In the Roman Empire, the crucified person would be left hanging on the cross for several hours of torture. I, uh, Psalm 22 actually gives us a little bit more deeper of a description of the crucifixion of Christ. Psalm 22 says this, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. Think about that. If you ever popped a shoulder out of place or an elbow out of place, you know how much it caused, but all of his bones were popped out of joint. It says, my heart is like wax, it is, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My, my strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. I want to stop there for a moment, because oftentimes people say that Jesus never said anything about people, you know, anything mean about people. Do you know, he's not referring to literal dogs. He's referring to those that crucified him. He's referring to the chief priest and all those that were around the cross hurling insults at him. Just want to let you know that, and the Bible calls them dogs. It says, for dogs have compassed, uh, compassed me. How do I know this? Is the, is the next line here. It says, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Can you imagine that? That your flesh is so torn and ripped and shredded that when he looks down, he can literally see his own bones sticking through. Next, I want to look at the curse of the cross. Paul, said, uh, Paul wrote this. He said, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In the Old Testament, those who, who were hanged on a tree were cursed. In the New Testament, the word tree is actually used three times in the book of Acts as a reference to the cross. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, chapter 10, verse 39, and chapter 13, verse 29. 
The law of God is holy and just and good. Most people look at the law of God and say, and you know, they look at the fact that they cannot keep the law, so they automatically assume that if they can't keep the law, that, that it must be horrible, that it must be the worst thing possible. But no, Romans chapter 7, verse 12 says that the law of God is holy and just and good. Man's problem is that he cannot keep the law. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and we all share the same punishment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Paul said, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, I had not known sin, but by the law. That's how we know what sin is, is that we look at the law, and the law shows us what sin is. That's why Paul says, I wouldn't have known what sin was, but the law showed me. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if we don't have the law, then we don't know what sin is. But the law shows us what sin is and shows us how much we are sinners. Someone had, uh, someone had wrote this. They said this. The punishment of being hanged on a tree and left to open exposure was thought to be so severe that it was reserved only for those for which it was to be declared, this one is cursed by God. So Jesus not only died in our place, but he took the place as the curse of God, being hung on a tree in open shame and degradation. According to Isaiah 53, Jesus was, smit, uh, was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Why was Jesus smitten by God? Because he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The whole reason why Jesus goes to the cross, the reason why he's beaten and nailed to a cross is because of us. Jesus was not nailed to the tree for any crime that he committed. Jesus was sinless, but he was made a curse for us, meaning our sins were placed on him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took the, the curse of sin upon himself to redeem us from our sin. Jesus redeemed or purchased us by giving himself on the cross. Amen? But that's not it. Je uh, there was a victor on the cross. There was a, wonder, uh, there was a wondrous king upon the cross. Remember, Jesus went upon the cross freely and willingly. Nobody made Jesus go on the cross. He willingly did it for us. Jesus was no victim on the cross. He is the king of the universe, the creator of all things. As Colossians chapter 1 says, a leaf, do you realize that, that a leaf does not shake in the wind, nor does a rain drop to the, uh, to the ground without his permission? He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. He is all-powerful, almighty God. Amen? He knows the stars in the heavens by name and the, the hairs, the number of hairs on your head. Mine are retreating. But he knows every single person's, how, how many hairs, I mean, think about that. I probably, you know, I probably, you know, lose attention after counting like 10 or 15 of my own hairs, let alone knowing how many hairs I have on my head. But he knows every single person's, how much hair they have on their head. That's how much he knows us, loves us. Why? Because he created us. He is the sovereign Lord. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. 
Jesus said that I and my Father are one, declaring that his deity and his equality with the Father. Jesus is then thrown in the heavens as what? As Almighty God, as Almighty Lord. And he willingly, he willingly went to the cross for us. He willingly went through everything for us. And still, this glorious king who lived, I want us to think about this. He lived in splendor and the glory of heaven. He left that to come here to purchase our ransom. Our ransom. He left the splendor and the glory of heaven and took upon human flesh. He took it upon himself, as Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says, the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He didn't, you know, that's the thing is, is that people don't really, there's some, there's some weird stuff out there where people say that, well, Jesus was just a spirit and he just kind of like, like floated around and told people stuff. Like he's Casper the Friendly Ghost or something. But he was fully God. He still is fully God, fully human. How does that happen 200%? I don't know, but God, you know, if anybody can do it, Jesus can. God can make it happen. Paul stated in 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. I don't understand how people get that idea that Jesus was just floating around as a spirit because there's so many scriptures that talk about how he lived in the flesh. That he was, in, you know, that he put on flesh. That he was, I mean, I don't understand how they can even come to that conclusion. But Jesus was and is and always will be God. He always was. He, he, he was before the creation of the world. Why? Because he's God. And like I, you know, I've said it before, maybe one of these, one of these Sundays, I, I'll, I'll go through the Old Testament where you see Jesus pop up in the Old Testament. Because He does. Oftentimes, you know, uh, you know, like, well, Jewish people, they don't realize it because they wouldn't think, you know, that, you know, like, oh, no, that's not Jesus. That's just somebody that was an angel or that was somebody that was, sorry, I better actually get back to, you know, or else I'll start preaching that one instead of what I'm supposed to be preaching this morning. But who would ever think that a king would die for his people? And greater still is the thought of a king who would die for his enemies. It's hard for us to think that Jesus would die for his friends, let alone his, enemy, uh, his enemies. We were his enemies, but he died for us. Amen? And he was a willing sacrifice, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus willingly went to the cross. It was not Pilate or a Roman soldier who forced Jesus to go to the cross against his will. In John chapter 19, verse 11, it says this, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. He says, basically, you would not have power unless I allowed it. It's not a boastful statement, not a prideful statement. He's just saying, this is the way it is. That he had, and the thing is, is that Pilate would sit there and think, you know, because right before this, he says, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or set you free? Jesus says, you wouldn't have that power unless I gave it to you. Jesus says in, in John chapter 10, he says this, he says, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I may, uh, might take it up again. No man taketh, for, uh, take, uh, taketh from me, but I lay it down on myself. Nobody could take Jesus' life. He says, I'm going to lay it down freely for you. He says, I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up, uh, take it again. 
this commandment I have I received of my Father. Nobody forced Jesus to go to the cross. He willingly did it. He says, you know what? I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it back up again. That's a powerful God. That is the only powerful God. The God of this world, small g, has nothing upon Jesus. The God of this world is Satan, and he has nothing upon him. When Jesus was being nailed to the cross, it was not man in control, but it was the wonderful Lord fulfilling his plan of redemption for sinners. He knew what it was going to take. When we survey the wondrous cross, it's because it was his plan for redemption for sinners. It was his plan. Philippians chapter 2, verse uh, 8 says, And being found in, uh, in fashion as man, he humbled himself and became, uh, became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. The fact is that he went through pain. He went through suffering. He went through all these things. But what did it say? It says that basically, it says that it was for the joy because he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was accomplishing. I mean, would you think that as your, as your flesh is being ripped from your body and you're having spikes driven through your hands and your feet, that that would be a joy to you? I, don't, I think joy might be, you know, a little bit down on my list. It'll be the last on my list. But it says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Because he knew what he was doing. He knew that it was, uh, it was for the redemption, uh, our redemption. He knew it was for you and for me. He is a wonderful Savior, amen? A wonderful Savior. That should bring a smile to your face of what he did for us. That he did that because he knew that there was no way that we get to be with him if he didn't do it. The writer of Hebrews declares, says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of God, uh, or sorry, the right hand of the majesty on high. The Lord Jesus being seated upon his throne in heaven assures us of a finished redemption. That when Jesus did it, it was once and for all. There was no need for lambs being sacrificed, no temple anymore. There was nothing that was needed. And here's another, uh, a little, I'm going to take a little side trail, you know, here for a moment. If you believe that the wall, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, is the old temple, I'm telling you, it's, you're wrong. You say, well, yes, it is. They said it is. No, it's not. Jesus prophesied that not one stone would be laid upon another, that they would be gone. The thing is, is that where the Jews are at the Wailing Wall today, going like this and back and forth, you know, with their curly cues swaying in the breeze, is most likely an old, fortress, an old Roman fortress. Do you know how I know this? Because the Old Testament talks about where the original site was. It's at the Gihon Springs, which is about a quarter mile away from where the Dome of the Rock is, where the Wailing Wall, where the wailing wall is, and all that. So here's the thing. If you're sitting there going, oh, they're going to have to destroy the, the Dome of the Rock, or they're going to have to go do this in order to get that third temple, no, they don't. It's about a quarter mile away, and there's nothing on it. So if you're waiting for that moment, or going, oh, man, there's going to be a civil war. No, there's not going to be a civil war. They just go over there and purchase that property. It's in the Old Testament. It tells us exactly where, you know, where the original temple was, and that's where they have to build it. 
if they want it to be accurate. Now, if they want to fight, I mean, they can go over there and do it, but it's not going to be the true sight of, of where it was in the Old Testament. The reason why I bring that up is because the third temple, when you start hearing that thing being built, you better watch out because what does the Bible say? It says that, the, that basically Satan or the man, that, you know, uh, the, man, uh, the man of perdition is going to do what? He's going to declare himself to be God in that temple. And you have to worship him to receive the mark of the beast. So if somebody starts telling you to worship them, and, you know, so you can receive a mark of a, you know, the mark, don't do it. Just telling you that. All right. Back from my rabbit trail. I wanna. There's a, a great, uh, another great uh, hymn writer, Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby uh, wrote the song that we heard in the uh, in the announcements this morning of uh, Blessed Assurance. She also wrote another beautiful hymn called He Hideth My Soul. This is the one I thought my, I had my wife uh, stumped on, and she started singing it, and I said. One of these days, I'm going to find one that she doesn't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, but this is a beloved hymn that, you know, and I heard it, and I just, it, it, it stood out to me. And the last stanza states this. It says, When clothed in his brightness, transported I rise to meet him in the clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, his wondrous love, I'll shout with the millions on high. I want you also to realize that Fanny Crosby was blind. At a very young age, she lost her sight. And so when you sing that song, Blessed Assurance, when she says that she has visions of rapture bursting upon her sight, she's blind. And she writes uh, such beautiful songs in the fact that, you know, and they're always so vivid, so visual. And you would think, how did she even know this? Not only was there a victor at the cross, but there was a victory at the cross. Jesus was victorious. Jesus' death and resurrection defeated death, sin, uh, Satan, and sin when he gave up his spirit and said, it is finished. It, it is undeniable that he is the undeniable uh, creator and, and king of all things. All the, the powers of darkness came against Christ when he was nailed to the cross. The religious leaders and the, and the Roman government with the power of, of the devil and his demons conspired together to destroy the Son of God on the cross. They thought, Satan thought, that this is finally, I'm going to take my rightful place upon my throne. These uh, enemies of Christ stripped him naked and publicly humiliated him by nailing him up on the cross. But in Acts chapter 2, it says this, the Bible says that it's impossible to keep him on the cross. Satan doesn't realize this. He didn't re he thought as soon as Jesus was death, you know, dead and he, and he breathed his last, that was it. Paul wrote in, uh, in Colossians chapter 2 about Jesus, say, uh, about Jesus spoiling principalities and powers. He made a show of them, openly triumphing over them in it. I mean, think about that. He spoiled principalities. Remember, you know, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities. It says, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. He, he made a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. So when we are wrestling against flesh and blood, and we're wrestling against principalities and darkness and powers, who do we go to? We go to Jesus Christ. Why? He was triumphing over them. For that reason, the Father hath highly exalted and given him a name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Socialist, every knee 
will bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and the things under the earth and that every tongue, every tongue. So if you don't like a political party, if you don't like somebody, realize one day, whether it's with joy in their heart that they say Jesus is Lord or they're, uh, they're gnashing their teeth and saying it, they're going to declare, as it says, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and to the glory of God the Father. That that's going to happen. Whether you say it lovingly because you've, you've received him, that you've believed upon him, or you've rejected him, you're going to say it no matter what. Not only is it Jesus' victory upon the cross, it's our victory. Our victory was achieved on the cross. Romans chapter 5 uh, says this, Paul reminds us, says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the, son, or by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That when we not only achieve the fact of, of, saving our, of him saving us, but he reconciled us to who? To himself. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As Christians, we share in the victory of Christ. The resurrected power of Christ is in us. Do you realize that? It says that the, uh, the, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in who? Believers. Lives in Christians, followers of Christ. That same power. Remember that power you know, where Jesus said, you know, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it back up again? That same power lives in us now because of him. We can say with Paul that uh, in Romans 8, it says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The devil, demons, nor any creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Isn't that amazing? That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited in the fact that there's nothing that God, there's, that God saved us. He loves us. He reconciled us. And that nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. As we survey the cross on which Christ died, I mean, we have one right behind me. It's supposed to symbolize it or the one that's up on the screen. As we survey the cross on which Christ died, I, I don't, I'm reminded, we should be reminded of the gravity of our sin and the grace of our Savior. We should be reminded of the gravity of our sin and the grace of our Savior. The last stanza of the hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, it ends like this. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we begin to think about the cross of Christ and what Jesus Christ accomplished, that he, he died, he was buried, and then he rose, that he was resurrected, that he's not dead. Does that not, does not, that not, does that not, not get us excited? That our God is not dead. I mean, I'm not going to sing the song, my God's not dead, you know, he's surely alive or whatever. But I mean, think about it. 
he's not dead. Every other religion that claims that they, uh, that they had a God or were God or whatever, you can find their tombs to this day. They are dead. My God is not dead. You go to that tomb and it's empty. He's alive. Does that not bring a smile to your face? That my God is not dead? Your God is not dead. If you've made Jesus Christ your Savior, you've, you've believed upon him, he's not dead. He's alive. Or do I have to wait a couple of months until we get to Easter, then everybody gets excited about Easter? That's when I should be excited. Because I should only preach about Jesus and the cross around Easter time, right? No. The Bible said, Paul said that if, that if Jesus didn't die for our sins, that we are still in our sins. The cross of Christ, my God, is alive. I think I may keep going until I actually get somebody, you know, to, to actually smile or something about this. He's alive. He's not dead. When you talk to him, when you pray to him, you're not praying to a dead God. You're praying to a God who's alive, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of God. He's alive, and he wants to hear from you. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, what did it accomplish? It reconciled me to God. It saved me from myself. He's alive. He's alive. To think about this. Nicodemus, back in John chapter 3, asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he said, you must be born again. We come to John chapter 19. He's still with Jesus. But it says both him and Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea said that he believed upon him. He was a disciple, but he did it secretly because he was afraid of the Jews, basically, that they were going to kick him out or kill him. That's, that's what I'm guessing. That's the reason why he would kind of keep that to a secret. And Nicodemus is the same thing. He's, he's a part of the chief priests and the, you know, the Pharisees as well. But he stays with Jesus, putting his reputation on the line. And we see him throughout John, that Nicodemus was not just there in the beginning, he was there in the middle, and he was also there when Jesus is at the cross. And remember that the entire purpose of John's gospel is found throughout the Gospel of John, but it's stated again in verse 35, but I want to read verse 34 because I believe that it's, it's such a powerful uh, uh, verse and just a, a powerful testimony of what happened. John chapter 19, verse 34 says this, says, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water, which showed that he had died. And he saw it, bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith uh, true, that ye may believe. What is he telling us? Well, for one thing, like I said, throughout the Gospel of John, it's that we may believe, that we may come to know Christ, that we would be saved, that we would give our life to him. But what's the thing is, is that the, the soldier who pierced his side and saw blood and water mingling and, and flowing down from the cross, saw this, and it says, and the reason why he tells us this is what? It says that he would bear record that, that you may believe. There's all kinds of different eyewitness accounts that they want you to know that way you would believe, that your family would believe, that your friends would believe, that your enemies would believe, that he wrote this so that people would believe. 
It's God's desire that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He died for all men that they could come to faith in him. The problem is, is that people have to receive that gift. They have to believe upon him, and most people don't want to do it. But does that negate the fact that we need to share the gospel with people? No. Our job is says, go ye therefore and preach the gospel to every creature. It didn't say, you know, if they're really interested or if they ask you about it. No, he says, just go and preach the gospel. Tell them about it. I'll tell you this. I had a friend of mine, you know, and this is not necessarily preaching the gospel, but this is what he did. He did this for about, you know, six, seven months, you know, before I actually, you know, came to church is that he kept on inviting me to go to church. And I, after a while, said, you know what, just to get you to shut up and leave me alone, I'll go to church just so you'll leave me alone. He also, you know, put a couple other things in there that I was really interested in at the time. I don't think I'm going to tell you that, though. No, he, he invited me to church, and he said, he said, all right, this is my last time that I'm going to, you know, take you, you know, t- uh, ask you to come to church with me. He says, but I'll tell you this. You don't have to come to church with me again if you just come this one time. I'll leave you alone. You don't have to go. And he says, there's basketball. I enjoy playing basketball. And he said, there's girls. The latter one was, you know, took a little bit more, um, you know, it was a little bit more favorable of the reason why I went. I'm just being honest. I could, I could sit there and lie to you and be like, oh, yes, I wanted to play basketball and hear about Jesus. No, it was more or less that I wanted to know about these girls he was talking about. So, and that's why I, I ended up wanting. But the thing is, is that he was persistent every single week. The thing is, is that you can, you know, invite people, share the gospel with them. My thing is, is that I would rather you share the gospel than for them to have to come to church to hear the gospel. Say, well, pastor, isn't that kind of your job? Actually, my job is to equip the saints. I would prefer, because I want you, to, uh, for one thing, to partake in the fact of somebody, you, one of your friends, one of your family members, one of your enemies coming to Christ and you leading them there. There is so much joy in leading somebody to Christ. And the thing is, is why, why are you so willing to give up Give that up, you know, so I can, you know, like put another jewel in my crown. I, like I said, I remember, and some of you may remember the person, I'm not going to say who it is, but I remember at Convoy of Hope, there was a person there talking to this lady. Led her, like I said, all the way up to her, this person wanting to receive Christ. And I said, hey, pastor, come here. She wants to receive Jesus. Can you pray her through it? led her up to the doorstep, and then said, hey, pastor, why don't you do it? Just lead him to the Lord. And I said, I have a better idea. Because I, I, asked, I asked, you know, this person, I said, so they're ready to receive the Lord, so you, you, you've preached the gospel to them, so they're ready to, to receive the Lord. And he said, yeah. He said, but, I, you know, I, I want you. I said, you led him to the door. I said, why don't you open the door for him and just bring him on home? The, there's nothing to describe the fact of you bringing somebody to the Lord. I brought people to the Lord, and I, like I said, it, it, it makes you feel like, you know, you can jump, you know, jump higher than LeBron James or whoever, I don't know, whoever you, I don't, I'm not a fan of LeBron James. I should have said Michael Jordan because I like, you know, I think LeBron James is a poor substitute. Anyways, but 
it makes you want to, you know, it feels like you could fly. I mean, it's just, you're so excited, there's such a joy in the fact that you brought somebody to the Lord, that you led them out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you brought them from captivity to freedom, that you were once there at one time, and somebody brought you to the Lord, and you remember what happened when you received Christ and the joy that you had, now you get to pay it forward. It's an amazing thing to do. It's an amazing thing to do. But like you said, it's, uh, back, to my, back to what I was saying, is the fact that you have soldiers, and you have all these different ones that are going around and bearing witness. Why? They're bearing record. Why? That you, I, those in, uh, your friends, your family would believe. That they would believe the gospel. Here's my question. What is your response to Jesus as you survey his cross? What is your response to Jesus as you survey his cross? When you see that, is it just some sort of necklace that you can wear, some sort of trinket around your neck? Some piece of, uh, you know, furniture that you can just place on top, of, you know, on top of your you know, table, to, you know, show people, hey, I, I got a cross in my house. There's something you know, like a little piece of wall art. Or do you realize that when, or is when you survey that wondrous cross, that you realize, and, and I know that this side of heaven, that we probably won't fully ever completely comprehend everything that that, that represents. But do we truly understand and are thankful and grateful for the cross of Christ, that he was willing to do all of that for us? And for some that say, well, they, don't even, they weren't even sure that Jesus really truly lived. Here's a, a secular source. Secular, source, uh, have, secular sources have even come out and says that there's more evidence to prove, uh, prove that Jesus Christ lived on this earth than there is for Abraham Lincoln. And I'm assuming everybody in here believes that Abraham li uh, Lincoln lived. I mean, you have his face on a $5 bill. So what is your response to Jesus as you survey that cross, as you look upon that cross? Is it just something that you look at and you can say, oh, that's nice? Or do you realize that's a symbol of torture and pain and suffering, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you and for me? Amen? Let's bow our heads.